We're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for uh, junior church this morning. And as they go, I'd like you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, which is not a departure from our topic of last week, but we're gonna, where we are going to pick up this morning in our discussion of <clears throat> the importance <clears throat> of how to overcome wrongs that we receive along the road of life. When we are offended, when we are sinned against, when we are wounded and injured by those sometimes careless words, thoughts and actions, or even the intentional wounding of fellow sinners. How do we work past? How do we overcome the wrongs that come to us in a fallen world? If you've worked on uh, computers for the length of time that I've worked on them, meaning going back somewhere into the 80s, but anyhow, if you've worked on computers long enough, I, I, I remember in college we did not have computers. I remember paying uh, other students to type my papers because mine would be so full of mistakes. How many of you in college did that? You paid other people to write your paper? Type? No. <laughs> okay. There you go. Um, you remember doing that, right? You you would pay people that could type 60 words a minute were a hot commodity in college. You would give them all your all your notes and your handwritten version where you had you know, crossed out things and corrected things, and then they would type it, and you would pay them to type your paper. When I got to seminary, they, they came up with the idea of PCs, so you had personal computers that you could use to type papers. Now, I've been using computers long enough that I remember when, they were, when the letters on the screen flashed in orange. Okay, The amber color and then the green color. Remember that, right? Um, anybody that worked on computers back then knows what it was to finish the document, and while you're kind of working at trying to save it, you mistakenly deleted it, okay? You would have that happen with significant portions of papers and documents and work that you were doing. It was amazingly frustrating. One of my favorite buttons on the computer today is, do you know what it is? Well, save is a good one, but if... if yeah, that undo button, right? The undo button is a wonderful button on the computer. I think I'm thankful that Microsoft came up with that. Apple probably stole it, right? <laughs> Just kidding. We had a couple. Of, the young people love Apple, so uh, they get all their ideas from Microsoft. Carmel, okay. So that undo button is a great thing. In life, there are many times where we have attitudes and actions and words that come out of our mouth, and we're, what, what we're thinking is, "I wish, wish I had an, an undo button," right? So that. Those stupid things that come out in moments of agitation or anger could be recalled and the effect eliminated. Well, there's a sense in which in the Christian life we do have an undo button that doesn't have a recycle bin attached to it. Okay, there is no place where it is stored. It's just undone and forgotten. And the word that the Bible uses for undoing our sin and its consequences that we deserve is the word forgiveness. First Corinthians 13.5, it says that love does not keep a record of wrongs received. And we started kind of nudging away, poking away at that verse last Sunday morning. A loving heart, a Christ-filled heart, will not keep a record of wrongs that it has received. Everyone in this room, I am certain, can remember times when we have offended in our words, in our attitudes, or in our actions. We also know what it is to 
be offended and be put in a place not only where we may need forgiveness, but in a place where we need to be the one who forgives someone who has wounded or injured us. The passage of Scripture that we started looking at last week says that love does not keep a record of wrongs that have been received. It doesn't record them with the intention of bringing them up later to drop them on someone's head as a means of spiritually or emotionally punishing them for the wrong that they have done to us. We all know what it is to make the mistake. We all know what it is to offend and be offended. The reason for hope in, the biblical, in biblical Christianity is that the blood of Jesus Christ provides for us an undo button that when it is applied to the offense, it is gone. It is gone. God wants us to be a people who learn to overcome offenses when they are received, who learn to overcome wrongs when they are experienced from the hands of others. Last Sunday morning, we laid out these three basic thoughts and then I'm going to pick up at the end of this. Number one is this. If the Word of God is telling me how to deal with conflict and wrongs received, then wrongs received in life is part of the normal experience for humanity. Okay, if God tells us how to deal with it, then He understands that it will be part of our personal experience. Secondly, we looked at this. Unresolved conflict is always a problem. Okay, so Conflict is normal in our experience, but when it is left unresolved, it is always a problem. Having it is not necessarily a problem. Why? Because if we deal with it and respond to it appropriately, it's taken away. But if I experience a wrong, a conflict, an offense, and I don't deal with it, it will always become a problem in my life. It is, in that sense, toxic in its nature. And so Ephesians 4, we looked at, told us, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath and don't give Satan a base of operation in your life. Therefore, the third point was this. We must make a commitment to keep no record of wrongs received, which is a permanent record stored in our minds of the wrongs that people have done to us. We need to make a commitment that I will not store baggage and bitterness in my heart as a believer. This week, I want to look at three thoughts on how do I avoid keeping a record of wrongs. I know the Bible is clear. Don't do it. Don't keep a ledger. Don't keep a permanent record. Because they are always kept for a purpose to meet at a future consequence. Which is denying in terms of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. So if I am keeping a permanent record of what Christ has forgiven, okay, I am in dangerous territory. So this week I want to look at the thought, how do I avoid keeping a record of wrongs when I am offended or in the sense of Matthew 18, sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ, by a mate, by a child, by a coworker, whatever it may be. How do I avoid keeping a record of wrongs? As we drift into this, I want, to, I want to make this observation. I was talking with Sandy uh, Wagner yesterday and just asked me what I was speaking on. I said, I'm talking about forgiveness. And, and this is the thought that came to my mind. Forgiveness is probably the most difficult task that God has called us to, isn't it? You think through your Christian experience, you think, what in your Christian experience is more difficult than forgiving people for offenses or wrongs that they have brought against you, especially when you discern that the offense or the wrong was in fact intentional. 
Okay, what in the Christian experience is more difficult than that? And then this is a thought that came to my mind. And what is a greater expression of Christ-likeness than forgiving others? Isn't it fascinating that Satan kind of digs in his heels, seeks a base of operation in our life through unforgiven sin? Because when we forgive sin, we are more like Christ than we ever are at any other point in our experience. And it should for us be no wonder that Satan would make that an issue that he would go after very, very strongly. So it is the most difficult, and yet it is the most Christ-like response that we can give to each other. So how do we avoid keeping a record of wrongs? The first thought is this, and I want to just say this. Some of my thoughts that I'm going to be sharing with you, I have been helped along uh, by some reading in a book by Ken Sanda called The Peacemaker. Uh, If you want a good book on resolving conflict, it is a good book. C.J. Mahaney said, after reading this book, I realized that no other book needs to be written on forgiveness. In terms of conflict resolution. It is that helpful of a book. First thought I think then this morning. That we need to grasp. If we're going to work at avoiding keeping our record of wrongs. Is this. We need to embrace conflict. As an opportunity. Okay. Embrace conflict as an opportunity. You know we we want to get out from under offenses and wrongs so quickly. That we fail to see the purpose for which God may have allowed it. To come into our experience. We want to escape from it. And sometimes we escape from it by avoiding it or by attacking the person who has wronged us. Okay, we, we tend to fall off on one of two sides. Just ignore, deny, or destroy. Okay, there is a better response. There is a biblical response. And the biblical response sees that conflict is an opportunity to grow in two ways. It's an opportunity to grow in becoming like the Savior. Okay, it's an opportunity to grow in becoming like the Savior. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 5. And let's begin reading in verse 3. The Word of God says this. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Okay, now what do you notice in those verses? You notice a progression working from trouble to progress in, the, in our Christian experience. So trouble becomes an opportunity for us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Turn ahead then to Romans chapter 8 real quickly, if you would. Romans chapter 8. And verse 28, a verse that captures this idea that in all circumstances, God can produce glory and good for his children. Verse 28, Romans 8, he says this. And we know that in all things. Okay, now that, if you don't have that circled or underlined or in quotation marks in your Bible, I would encourage you to do that. Okay, we know, believers know that in all things, God is, what's it say? God is working for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The idea of many brothers is that there will be many people that are becoming so like Christ that they eventually are mistaken for him. They have such Christ-like character. Okay, how does that come about? Well, in this text, it says God takes 
all things, that is things that are good and bad, and he works them together to produce in our life Christ-like attributes and characteristics. So that Jesus may be the firstborn among many that will become like him through his grace. His grace that is growing them while they're here, overcoming sin and struggle and difficulty and offenses that have come against them. You see, if we, embrace, uh, if we embrace conflict as an opportunity, God will begin to use that difficult circumstance to teach us more about his love for us. He will use that difficult offense to cause us to become more like Christ in our response as we study the life of Jesus. We'll see how we should respond to offenses because he certainly experienced many of them. One writer called this the ABCs of spiritual growth. Adversity builds character. And you can go through Scripture and find numerous occasions where you find adversity building character in the life of God's children. James chapter 1 is a classic example. James 1 verse 2. Brothers, count it all joy whenever you experience various kinds of trials. Why? Because you know that the trial is producing in you a greater degree of Christ-likeness, endurance, staying power when wronged. Okay, so if I look at struggle and difficulty as an opportunity to grow to become more like Christ, as an opportunity, secondly, to serve others in my sphere of influence, there will be positive outcomes from the struggles that we experience. And we need to go into them with the eye of faith saying, God, I don't know how, out of this difficult, offensive situation, you could produce good for your name and for the glory of your children. But I am going to trust you. And I think this is the, the crucial part of this whole issue of not keeping a record of wrongs received. Do you trust God? I think that is the critical factor, and we'll come back to that towards the end of this discussion. The individual experiences of our life are unpleasant. But when God works them together, He produces something, the Bible says, that is for good. And He, he takes all things and brings out of them a, an honor and a glory for His name. So this passage, Romans 8, starts out with a difficult statement. God causes all things. There isn't anything in your life that God was not aware of. There isn't anything that has occurred in your life that God has been surprised by. If He allows it to come into your life, brings it into your experience, He has a purpose for that. One writer talking about this was expressing how when you, when you put together the ingredients of a cake, uh, the ingredients individually are not very appealing. Okay? I don't, how many of you like to eat dry flour? Anybody like doing that? Okay. How about raw eggs? How many of you have ever tried raw eggs? Remember as a kid, uh, everybody was into weightlifting and you say, hey, raw eggs, that's the way to get a lot of protein and get strong. Okay? Uh, by themselves, not good. But when you take all the ingredients that go into making a cake, baking powder and those kinds of things, and they're all mixed together and cooked, what comes out is very pleasant. Even though the individual ingredients to that cake in and of themselves are not pleasant. But see, we need to look at our circumstances that God allows to come into our life offenses and wrongs that are received and realize that when God finally brings this big picture of my life together, something good and for his glory is going to emerge out of it. But to believe that on a daily basis takes great faith. It takes great faith. We are so easily pushed off the tracks, uh, Brent, in what you said this morning, just a reminder for all of us that we, we allow circumstances to blow us off the track and lose the wellness of our soul that is found when we know God is going to use all of these things for his good and for his glory. 
And that is the experience of his children. Embrace conflict as an opportunity to begin to see God work so that you grow in Christ. And in that conflict, you have an opportunity to serve others. Okay, in in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus is talking about how to deal with wrongs received, when your enemy offends you, love him back. And you read that and you're like, no, I don't want to do that. That's not natural. That's unnatural. He says, but when you do that, you will be children of your Father in heaven. Meaning, you will exhibit the character of your Father as you forgive those who wrong you. A very clear and compelling call for forgiveness emerges from the pages of the Gospels. Especially a love that is towards enemies who intentionally wrong us. What does God want to produce in you or in me this morning? By the experience of pain and offense that he allows to come into our life. I'm going to guess this morning that it is likely that sitting in in this large of a group, there are a number of people who are wrestling with wounds and offenses that have been received. Will you trust God to give you the courage to embrace it as an opportunity to see his glory revealed through difficulty in your life? Will I? This is something I wrestle with, with going through this passage. Wrestle with these notes. Am I willing to go and get the things right that I need to get right with people? Or am I going to harbor offenses and wounds in my heart? If we are going to overcome conflict and offenses in our life, the second thing we need to do after embracing it as an opportunity is we need to establish a biblical pattern for dealing with offense. I don't know about most of you, but my flesh has a response to offense. And I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to plan it. I have a natural response. A, a, uh, you want to call it an automatic response to offenses. Someone cuts me off on the road. I don't say to myself, okay, now it would be a good time to beep the horn at them. I don't have to do that. Okay? Guess what? It just, it's automatic. Our flesh is that way. Okay? Now, when, not if, but when you experience offenses you need to be sure that you have developed a biblical response in your heart and in your mind. You have cultivated. Here's how Jesus Christ responded to my offenses against him. And that is how I ought to respond to the offenses that I receive in my life. If you don't have a biblical plan for dealing with offenses and conflicts, your flesh will come up with one and it will usually be a pretty horrible one. The question is not, Will I experience offense? The question is, when will I experience offense? Okay, living in a fallen world, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, conflict, offenses. And throughout the Gospels, what is he doing? He's teaching his disciples how to navigate life in a fallen world where offense is to be expected. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13, just ahead a few pages. Romans 13 and verse... 14. One of the things that I think is critical is that we learn how to disarm our flesh in circumstances like we're talking about this morning. Our, perhaps our most common flesh response to offense is to fight back or to run away. We have one of those two responses. Neither are helpful to the individual who has offended us. Okay, they may make it easier for us to deal with it personally in the short term, but in the long term, it becomes toxic and dangerous 
in our lives. Romans 13, 14 says this. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, put on the responses of Jesus to offense and wrongs received. And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The New New American Standard Version says this. Don't make provision for your flesh. Don't think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Okay? New American Standard says, don't make provision for your flesh. Don't make a way, don't cultivate a way in your heart that you will respond improperly to wrongs. Cultivate a Christ-like heart that responds biblically to wrongs that are received. Okay? Now, here's the idea I think that Paul is saying. Starve or deprive your flesh of the opportunity to respond inappropriately to offenses received. Okay, when your flesh wants to respond, the Spirit of God is saying no. Allow the Spirit of God to overwhelm and destroy, take away any food in your heart that feeds that resentment, that reaction spirit. Okay, starve it. Make no provision for it. Don't allow bitterness to find a place in your heart. Don't store a record of wrongs received because if you do, it will eventually take over your heart. Okay, it is exceedingly dangerous to harbor wrongs in our hearts. And I think that's very clear. So establish a biblical pattern. This week and then next week, I want to help us to lay out a biblical response to offenses when they come into our lives. Why should I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think just two observations here. One is so that I act in obedience to the Spirit of God. Cultivate a responsiveness. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Cultivate a sensitivity to the Spirit of God who when you're offended is going to bring into your heart responses of gentleness and meekness. Sometimes firmness. Okay? Because it's not appropriate to overlook wrongs. If Matthew 18 tells us how to approach someone who's offended us, then certainly God wants us to do that. But He wants us to do it without our flesh involved. Okay? that He wants us to do it under the power and compulsion of the Spirit of God. So, act in obedience. And then one other thought that I think is very important here is don't become apathetic towards offenses and wrongs in your life. Okay, it is easy just to become apathetic and to say, I don't really care. I don't believe that apathy is a biblically justifiable response to wrongs received. Okay, if God has given us a way to restore relationships in the context of church life, then he wants us to take advantage of that strategy that he establishes in his word. He doesn't want us to bury it and to act like it isn't there. Because buried offenses will become very dangerous and will become a plague in your life. About, I'm going to guess it's uh, four miles away from my house, there's a place called the High Point Landfill. How many of you have ever heard of the High Point Landfill? If you live in Franklin Township, you don't want to know about it. Okay? We learned about it because about seven years ago, uh, the state of New Jersey, the Department of Environmental Protection, sent us a letter saying, we need to test the water that's coming into your house through your well. Because a house in your development was recently sold, and they found trichloride ethylene in the water. Now, I don't know what trichloride ethylene was at that time. I didn't know but I knew it wasn't good, okay? Anything with those kinds of names, you know, that's like chemical of some kind that has been released into the water table under Franklin Township, and it's, it, some of it comes from Washington, some of it comes from the High Point Landfill. It's, it's a plume underground. You know what it's the result of? 
the inappropriate disposal of toxic waste. And the result is that it can have a lethal effect on people who partake of too much of it. Okay? When we bury sin in our lives, when we bury offenses and wrongs and bitterness and those kinds of attitudes in our heart, it it will work like that. It doesn't go away until it's removed. Okay? And it will begin to contaminate more and more and more of our lives. So in our house, we have a filtration system. It's two tanks that are about four and a half, five feet high, and then two sediment filters beside it. It takes up about five feet of wall space. I don't think that the people who were dumping those barrels into that landfill ever thought that there would be such an enormous consequence. And you go back and you look at the cost of remediating the problems that were caused by the illegal dumping of toxic waste in that landfill, you'll find that it goes well into the millions of dollars. Devastating consequences, but unintended consequences of burying something that should have never been buried. The same thing is true in our Christian experience. If we ignore the toxicity of offenses that have been received or wrongs that have been received and we bury them and allow them to turn into bitterness and resentment, the consequences of that will be colossal in our Christian experience. They will kill the power of God in our lives. So we need to be sure that we establish a biblical pattern that we don't become apathetic and bury. When I, when I think of this principle, I think of Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. When he finally comes to the end of his road of rebellion against God, and his heart turns and he begins to move towards home, you know what the Word of God says? It doesn't say that the father is apathetically sitting in his living room watching his plasma screen TV, caring little or at all about his son. What it says is this. While the son is a long way off, the father sees him. Okay, what, what many commentators draw out of that is that there was an active watching, scanning of the horizon, waiting for the son to come home, waiting for an opportunity to restore him. Who was the wounded and offended one in the story? It is the father. But what is he doing? He's scanning the horizon, waiting for the opportunity to bless and forgive his son. Okay, that is powerful. He's not apathetic to the departure of his son because he was so humiliated and ashamed by him. No. He is actively pursuing the restoration of his son. And when he comes, he pours an astonishing amount of love on him, so much so that it irritates the self-righteous brother. Have you ever forgiven someone and someone says, how how could you possibly forgive that? After all they've done to you, how could you possibly forgive them the wrongs and offenses? Well, that's the nature of the love of God. It's an irritating grace to self-righteous people. But it is powerful when it is experienced. And once you've experienced, I'm going to tell you something. It becomes easier when you, when you revel in, when you sing about what Christ has done for you. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. When you focus on that kind of grace and allow that to sink into your heart, it becomes easier to establish a biblical pattern for dealing with offenses and wrongs. You need to cultivate a heart that appreciates the love and grace of God so that you don't bury bitterness and resentment, toxic waste in your life that will eventually have lethal consequences for your spiritual life. Okay, so we, we need to 
go to Scripture and say, okay, what is the biblical pattern? And the passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 5, I think is great. Don't keep a record of wrongs received. Matthew 18 tells you how to walk through a process when an offense or wrong has been received. Galatians 6, 1 also tells us how we can work at restoring someone who has slipped down the hill of immorality or sin in attitude or action or thought. Tells us how to go and rescue them with the spirit of meekness. Why? Because we understand how much we have been forgiven. And when you're standing beside the cross and you're exalting in the cross, there will be no pride in your life. You will come into the life of others. You will move into the life of others who are struggling or who have offended and wronged you. And you will be able to embrace them in the love of Christ and bring peace-giving, God-honoring, God-exalting grace and forgiveness. The last thought this morning that I want to share with you is this. Be committed to glorifying, your God, to glorifying God in your response to offenses that are received. Be committed to glorifying God in your response to offenses that are received. And I just want to give you three very, very simple thoughts about how we glorify God. Number one, we glorify God by pursuing and making peace in a fallen world. We glorify God by pursuing and making peace in a fallen world. Let me just read for you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Listen to what this says. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you might inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Isn't that powerful? A child of God is going to actively, not apathetically respond to wrongs. They're going to actively respond to wrongs received by pursuing reconciliation, harmony, and peace. Because when God comes into our lives, what does He desire to bring to us? Through His Son, the Prince of Peace. He wants to bring peace into our relationships and into our lives. So the first thought, if I'm going to pursue the glory of God in circumstances of difficulty, I need to pursue peace in a fallen world. Secondly, I need to imitate the grace of God. Ephesians 4 gives us a, just a quick nudge on this. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Just listen along as I read this to you. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. That is, don't keep a record of wrong. Forgive each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Okay? How did God forgive you? Think back to when you placed personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How did he forgive you? He forgave you carte blanche. He took the entire weight and consequence of your sin and he cast it far behind his back, out of sight as far as the east is from the west. That's how he forgives. The way that we glorify God when offenses and wrongs are received is we go to the person, we seek reconciliation and restoration and in doing that verse 1 of chapter 5 says be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God 
That is to say that the death of Christ on the cross, shedding his blood to pay the price for my sin, rose up before the Father as a fragrant, pleasing offering. And folks, every time we practice biblical forgiveness, we refuse to keep a list, a permanent record of wrongs received, and we express towards fallen people the grace of God, we are imitating the Savior, Jesus Christ. And as one has said, there is no greater way to flatter someone, to honor someone, than there is to imitate them. When you're wrong, would you respond like Christ does? Imitate his grace towards fallen people. Think of the words of Jesus, Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. When he's on the cross, as he is being crucified, he cries out and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That level of grace was contagious to Peter the disciple, or to Stephen, one of the followers of Jesus, who at the time of his stoning in Luke chapter 7 says, Father, do not hold this sin to their account. The same word is used. Don't write this on their ledger. Don't hold them accountable for this act. I forgive them. When? When they're throwing stones at him, stealing his life from him for proclaiming the good news of Christ. He has been infected by the love of Christ to the degree that he responds in the same way as the Savior to the offense that is being poured out upon him unjustly. Father, do not hold this into their charge. So we glorify God by pursuing and making peace. We glorify God by imitating His grace. And then thirdly, we do this. We glorify God by trusting Him with the outcome of offenses received. I believe this is perhaps the hardest point of this sermon. We glorify God when we trust Him with the outcome of offenses that have been committed against us. Romans chapter 12 has a very, very powerful statement on this topic. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. As you turn there, let me just, I want to reflect on a passage from Proverbs that is very familiar to us. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, on your normal mode of operation. In all your ways, look to him. He'll show you the way. Particularly in the context of offenses and wrongs received. Look to God. Do not look to your flesh. Don't react in your flesh. Rest in, press into the Spirit of God. Ask Him how you can best respond to the offense or wrong that you have participated in. The question with forgiveness is always this. Am I willing to trust God with the outcomes? Why is it hard? Because we have a fear in our hearts that if we cut this person slack and they don't pay for what they've done, will they ever get what they deserve? Right? That's the... That's the question. If I forgive them, will they ever get what they really deserve? Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil to anyone. And this, the idea here is slight for slight. It's not saying that the government doesn't have a responsibility to execute justice. Or that God cannot execute justice. But in the context of the Christian experience, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, 
as far as it depends on you believers. Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he flips it over and says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Okay, be a blessing. Seek to trust God so much that you can begin to love people that don't deserve to be loved. Because folks, isn't this the bottom line? Isn't the bottom line that I, because of faith and trust in Jesus Christ and because of his shed blood on Calvary's cross, I will not get what I deserve. But someone did. Because forgiveness is not free. Okay? It's not free. The blood of Christ is the payment. It is the consequence. It is shed because of my sin. So for everyone who trusts in the death of Christ as their death for their sin is free from the consequences of every wrong and every offense that they have ever committed. Praise God. And folks, the motivation then for responding graciously and in a forgiving way to offenses and wrongs that are received, the, the motivation is found at the foot of the cross. You see, that's, that's how Paul deals with it. He says, don't give revenge for revenge. Don't pay back. Leave room for the work of God. Wouldn't it be great if the people who have wronged you and offended you would come to recognize their sin, cry out to God, and find forgiveness? Would that not be the greatest honor and the greatest glory? In the context of offense, that somehow that individual who has gone so far out of line and off the path would finally come to a place where they see that God in His grace has taken the full consequence of their sin and placed it on His Son, Jesus Christ. And for that person, it can be well with their soul, just as it is with yours this morning, if you know Christ. Very, very, very powerful. The reason Christians don't give everybody around them what they deserve, revenge for revenge, the reason they don't is because they know what it is to be forgiven. They have experienced the awesome and incredible grace of God. My flesh wants to take matters into my own hands. God says, Tim, will you trust me? Will you trust me? As we close this morning, I think of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Genesis chapter 50. Brothers who, with murderous hatred, sold their brother into slavery. What did they want? They just wanted him to be gone. Most of us know the story. Joseph ends up going down into Egypt. There he is mistreated. Uh, eventually he ends up in prison. Eventually God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And he arises out of prison and is second in line to Pharaoh on the throne. His brothers are in the land of Israel battling with a famine. Father of Joseph sends his brothers down to Egypt. And Joseph has an encounter with his brothers in which he blesses them and blesses them and blesses them. And finally, there is a restoration of relationship. The father comes down to Egypt and lives out the rest of his life in the presence of his son. When dad dies, the brothers are stricken with fear. Do you know why? Listen to what Genesis 50 says. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if... 
Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him. You know what they're thinking? What if Joseph is like us? What if Joseph has held a grudge, waited for dad to die, and now is going to destroy us? Meaning, he's going to give us what we deserve. What are they asking? Here's what they're asking. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, second half of the verse. Did Joseph keep a record of the wrongs that he received? Has he kept a ledger in his heart of the offenses that we brought against him? Is he holding them up, waiting to drop them on our head to obliterate our lives? Because that's what we deserve. And I love what Joseph says. Here's what he says. His brothers come and they say, you know, we, we know we did all these things and we're so sorry and we, we're feeling bad, blah, blah, blah. And they go on and on and on. And here's what Joseph says. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. And then here's the key question. Am I in the place of God? That's what he says to his brothers. Am I in the place of ultimate judgment? Do I hold the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So through Joseph's grace and through the sin of his brothers, the offense of his brothers, God has worked out something that is glorious because God is what? Working all things together for good to those who know him and trust him. Ask yourself this question. How much gratitude do you think Joseph's brothers felt towards him when they saw him respond appropriately, biblically, to the offense that they had given him? They knew what they deserved, and he wouldn't give it to them. May God help us to not keep a record of wrongs received. May we be like Joseph who I believe in the Old Testament is a picture that looks forward to Jesus Christ, who doesn't keep a record of our wrongs, but instead by his blood blots our sins from the record and gives us his righteousness so that we can have the hope of heaven. And folks, if you've experienced that kind of grace and forgiveness so that you can sing this morning with all of your heart, it is well with my soul because my sin in its entirety was placed on Christ. If you have that kind of freedom, from the consequence of sin that you deserve, then can't you, out of deep gratitude, and shouldn't I, shouldn't you, out of deep gratitude, express and practice and deliver forgiveness to those who wrong us and offend us? Shouldn't we? Because the grace that we experience, we don't deserve it. I was walking through that room right there. Joanna Kama was standing there, and Ruth walked by, and I bent down, and she gave me a kiss on the cheek, and Joanna said, what do you do to deserve that? You know, my response was nothing, nothing. My wife gave me what I deserve. It would be really ugly. (laughs) If God gave us what we deserve, folks, please understand this. It would be really ugly. We have been so, so blessed by the grace of God. And there's a sense of what you want to say. How dare Tim Hoff hold a grudge or an offense against someone else for something they did to him? How dare he? He has been forgiven so much. Do you see? Joseph, in his experience, was so blessed by God, he couldn't hold it against them because he saw the hand of God in all that was happening. And he forgave them and didn't hold it over the head and give them what they deserve. Gratitude. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. 
We're going to share in the elements that speak of our forgiveness. That speak of the suffering that Jesus Christ endured because of the offenses and wrongs that we did against him. Because all of our sin ultimately is against God and his holiness. This morning we're going to hold in our hands elements and we're going to, we're going to attempt, for everyone here that knows Christ, we're going to attempt to express gratitude to God for the greatest sacrifice that was ever made for humanity. And I'm going to tell you something. In your attempt to express gratitude to God for his cross work through his son, your gratitude this morning will fall short. You're going to struggle with finding appropriate words. I was listening, uh, I think it was last Saturday, um, the captain of flight 1549, the flight that landed in the Hudson River in New York on January 15th. There was an interview of him by Katie Couric with uh, the three flight attendants that were, that were involved in that experience of landing that jet in the Hudson River. And they went, went through all the, the typical stuff, what was it like inside, all those kinds of things. And at the end of the interview, Katie Couric asked this question to Captain Sullenberger. She said to him, and this is having realized that the plane landed in water that was 36 degrees, swimming 100 yards in water of that temperature is virtually impossible before you would be overcome by hypothermia and die. And her question was about the rescuers, about all of the boats that came to the plane and rescued every single individual, 150 plus off that plane, no one dies. She asked him, what do you feel towards them? What do you want to say to them? To the people came and rescued you and saved your life. And here's what Captain Sullenberger said. He said, I have a debt of gratitude that I fear I may never be able to repay. I have a great attitude that I fear I may never be able to repay. Folks, when you come to the Lord's table, <clears throat> that's the thought that should be on your mind, but without the fear. We come knowing, I have a debt of gratitude that I will never be able to repay, but that I will send, spend eternity seeking to express. And so this morning as we close, have you trusted Christ? as your Savior from sin? Do you know what it is to be born again by the shed blood of Christ? Have you seen that His death on the cross was your death? Have you seen that His blood was shed to pay for sin, your sin? If you've never trusted Him as Savior and Lord, I want to encourage you to do something. As we hear some music played and as we sing together and, and receive the elements of the Lord's table, I want to encourage you to do something very brave. I want to encourage you to get out of your seat and if you want to do this, come to the front and say, Pastor Tim, this morning, I want to trust in Jesus Christ. I want to know him as my Lord and Savior from all of my sin. And this morning, I'm going to come to demonstrate that I desire to trust in him and to be forgiven by him, his blood, his grace. I want to know him personally. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper, I want you to do this. I want to encourage you to just examine your heart before God. Is there an offense? Is there a wrong that you've been harboring that you have refused to deal with before God? Towards a brother or sister, towards a mate, towards a co-worker, towards a friend. Is there something that you have been holding against them?
And if there is, I want to encourage you this morning. Would you put it under the blood of Christ and allow it to be completely forgiven by His grace and for His glory so that the joy of your salvation can be restored? Uh, Father, as we stand before you this morning, 